We return to Isaiah chapter 53, and tonight we'll read the entire chapter, beginning at verse 1. Isaiah chapter 53, and verse 1, let us hear the word of God. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, or like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him and to put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Amen, so reads the Holy Word of God. Well, turn with me again this evening to Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, we continue to uh, draw from this rich chapter of God's Word to, to profit our souls and, and to lead us uh, to, to the Lord and to inspire us to serve him in the days to come. 
I've entitled the sermon of thanksgiving this evening, The Cross is Paramount. The Cross is Paramount. When the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is being observed, it should always be in conjunction with the preaching of the Word. Word and sacrament must never be separated. No one, absolutely no one, should ever attempt to drive a wedge between them. And the word preached prior to our observing the sacrament should always be on some aspect of what the sacrament signifies. The sacrament uh, of the Lord's Supper, uh, as you all know, signifies the death of Jesus Christ. The broken bread signifying a body broken for us. The poured out wine signifying blood shed for the remission of our sins. That being true, that being the case, the preaching ought always to focus on some aspect of Christ's sacrificial death for sinners. And that was our focus this morning as we took as our text Isaiah 53 and verses 7 to 9. And in these verses we notice, first of all, the Saviour's willingness to die, verse 7. In the face of all the suffering, he did not open his mouth. He did not raise his voice in protest. He suffered willingly. Then we looked at the the Saviour's experience of death, beginning at verse 8 and verse 9. Particularly the words, he was cut off out of the land of the living. He died. He went through the experience of death. The curse of a broken law was placed upon him. And so he died to bear that curse. And then thirdly, the Saviour's purpose in dying, the end of verse 8. Stricken for the transgression of my people. He became our substitute. He took our place. He bore the wrath of God for us. And then before partaking of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we considered the warning in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27. The warning against eating and drinking unworthily. We we thought about our worthiness uh, by reflecting on the words at the end of verse 29 about discerning the Lord's body. Did we truly recognize that the broken bread, set apart from a common to a sacramental use, symbolized our Lord's body? And that by partaking of that bread, we were symbolically feeding upon him. We were symbolically being nourished by him in our souls. By feeding upon upon him, we were being strengthened for future service. If we acknowledged our sin and believed that Christ bore the punishment for our sin on the cross, then there was a place assuredly for us at his table. After partaking of the sacrament, we pause for a few minutes at the table to think about the great blessing believers enjoy through Christ's redemptive work, the blessing of justification described eloquently in Isaiah 53 and verse 11. 
By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. We were challenged when we, when we recognized that being accounted righteous, we were to be righteous. Where we, we were to be what we are. We were to be what we truly are in Christ. Now this evening in our Thanksgiving service, verses 10 to 12 of this chapter, we will see in these verses that the cross is very much to the fore. And we'll read the three verses again, 10, 11, and 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When the soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. First of all, we see here the cross, God's eternal purpose. The cross, God's eternal purpose. Verse 10. There are some who believe that Christ's mission went horribly wrong. That as a man, he was cut off in his prime cut off in his prime with so much potential, still unrealized. But friends, this is not the view of the believer. Rather, those who propagate such views are unbelievers. Because the Bible does not suggest for one moment that Christ failed in his mission, or that the cross was an unfortunate mistake. Rather, the Bible teaches the opposite. The cross was the climax and culmination of Christ's mission. Jesus himself sums it up so well in the words of John 12, verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, he said. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. You see, Jesus knew. Jesus understood why he had come into the world. At the precise moment that the Father had determined he was to offer up himself as a sacrifice to bear the punishment of sin. Scripture keeps saying over and over again, particularly in John's Gospel, for example, in John 2, verse 4, Jesus says to his mother, My hour has not yet come. And then John, commenting on events, John 7, verse 30, His hour had not yet come. And then, again, commenting on events, John 8, verse 20, His hour had not yet come. But on the eve of the cross, Purposefully and deliberately, 
Jesus said in John 12, 23, The hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then later, in John 13, verse 1, he said, For this purpose I have come to this hour. He knew on the eve of the cross that the hour had come. He knew the divine timetable. He knew when the precise moment had come for him to offer up himself a sacrifice. No, friends, the cross of Christ was not some bizarre incident or accident of human history. It was the precise outworking of the plan and purpose of God, determined from all eternity. Although some would try to depict the Father as terribly disappointed in the crucifixion of a son, that is not. That is not what the Scriptures teach. Verse 10 before us states, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Or verse 6, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Some might suggest that God the Father was compelled by some external agency to lay our sins on his Son, Jesus Christ. But that is utter nonsense. The Holy Spirit is very careful in the words of our text to reinforce the fact that God was compelled by nothing else but his own free and sovereign will to lay our iniquity upon his Son. Verse 10 again. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And that will was prophetically revealed in the form of a command in Zechariah 13 and verse 7. The Father is speaking. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the good shepherd. Against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd. The father about his beloved son. So this was God's plan from all eternity. That is why John, writing in the book of Revelation, can speak of Jesus being the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. In the sermon on the day of Pentecost, Peter could refer to Jesus as being, quote, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That is why God could speak immediately after our first parents sinned about the seed of the woman, about Christ crushing the head of the serpent. Because the plan was already in place. The plan was already in place from all eternity. And so, right after the sin of our first parents, the plan was announced. So the human race had always hope in a coming Redeemer who would save his people from their sins. And so the cross conceived in eternity 
worked out in time. So the cross was not some sad conclusion to a promising life, but the perfect climax, the perfect climax to the glorious mission with which the Son had left heaven's glory to come to earth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And let us never forget that. And may we always praise God and thank God and glory in our God that he loved us so much that he purposed the execution of his Son, his beloved Son, to save us from hell's torments, to enable us to share heaven's delights with him forever. The cross, God's eternal purpose. And then secondly, the cross, God's efficacious plan. The cross, God's efficacious plan. Verse 11. Up to now we've been emphasizing that the plan has been conceived in eternity in all its detail. Now we're asking a very simple question. Did it work? Did it work? Was it an efficient plan? Was it an efficacious plan? Did it fulfill all that God the Father expected of it? The answer is yes. The answer is a triumphant yes. The efficacious nature of the servant's sacrifice now becomes a major theme in these closing verses of Isaiah 53. It worked. It was 100% effective. It accomplished all that it was designed to do. We read in the middle of verse 10, He shall see his offspring. And they want you to note the personal pronoun, his. He shall see his offspring. He shall see his seed. He shall see his children. No one else's. And how, you may may ask, can this man have seed? How, you may ask, can this man have offspring? How, you may ask, can this man have children? Cut off in his prime at the age of 30. Well, this is a reference not to natural seed, but to spiritual seed, to spiritual children. This is a reference to all those for whom he laid down his life. Because his sacrifice was acceptable to the Father, because it was altogether sufficient without spot or blemish, because it was efficacious, he will, according to Hebrews 2 and verse 10, bring many sons to glory. The same thought occurs at the beginning of verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And this quote from verse 11 quite literally reads, After the suffering of his soul, he will be satisfied with what he sees. He will be satisfied with what he sees. Now that begs the question, what did he see? Well, I believe he saw you as he hung there upon the cross. 
And he saw me. And he saw every child of God. Everyone redeemed by his precious blood. And he was satisfied. Satisfied with what he saw. Yes, I believe he saw us in Trinity RP, a part of his body. He partook of the elements of bread and wine this morning in remembrance of him. And Jesus was satisfied as he saw us. But more than that, I believe, I believe he saw the innumerable heavenly host described in Revelation 7 and verse 9. As John records it, as he views the scene in heaven, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And the Saviour was satisfied with what he saw. It was the fruit of his sacrificial death. It was the children for whom he died. And friends, what confidence that should inspire in our souls. Christ offered up the perfect sacrifice and it was accepted by the Father. Jesus Christ made complete atonement for our sins. He cancelled out all, all our debt. He fulfilled all the requirements of God in relation to our broken law and offended holiness. And so it has all been accomplished. There's nothing left for us to do but accept the Son. Nothing left for us to do but to receive Jesus Christ by faith. To praise the Lord, Jesus is satisfied with what he saw. The cross, God's eternal purpose. The cross, God's efficacious plan. And now thirdly and finally, the cross, God's way to glory. End of verse 10, beginning of verse 11 and verse 12. The cross, God's way to glory. When Jesus began to speak about suffering and death, just about in the middle of his three-year public ministry, the, the disciples were appalled. And P Peter, no doubt speaking what the others were thinking, said to Jesus, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. To which our Lord replied, saying to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see, Peter and the other disciples thought that the kingdom of God would come about through a, a popular revolution, that it would come about through a Jewish uprising led by Messiah, leading to the expulsion of the Roman occupying power. They thought that that was the only way that would lead to glory. But Jesus had in mind the things of God. 
And he knew that the kingdom would come not through military might, that the kingdom would come not through a popular uprising, but that the kingdom would come through sacrifice. The kingdom would come through suffering. The kingdom would come through death. That that was the only way that would lead to glory. And we find that emphasis prevalent in these closing verses of Isaiah 53. Verse 10, He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The kingdom coming through his suffering. The kingdom of glory ushered in through Christ's death. After humiliation, the humiliation of Calvary, there would be the exaltation of the Father's right hand. Within this verse, verse 10, there is an allusion, a reference to the fact of Christ's resurrection. He would see prolonged days. But how? How can a crucified man see prolonged days? After all, he died at the age of 33. But because of the resurrection, Christ rose from the dead to reign as king forever and ever. This verse also speaks of the growth of Christ's church. He shall see his offspring. He shall see a great number that no man can count. And so the kingdom would grow and keep on growing as men and women are brought into it by his grace and for his glory. And Jesus Christ would see the glory of his kingdom. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Remember what he said to the disciples, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. All the forces of Satan that are unleashed against my kingdom will not prosper. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The opening words of verse 11 also imply exaltation. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. As we were saying earlier, our, our Savior is satisfied with what he sees. But he will bring many sons to glory. That in heaven he will have with him a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, tribe, people and language. And the opening words of verse 12 speak forthrightly about the exaltation of the suffering servant. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. These are the words of victory. These are the words of triumph. And the Father will honour the Son with the spoils of victory. Having dealt a mortal bow to Satan, having conquered sin and death, Jesus then will enjoy exaltation, given a name that is above every name, in heaven and on earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord these thoughts are crystallized in the familiar words of Philippians 2, 9 to 11. 
and exaltation that came about because the suffering servant was obedient unto death. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And to the cross, God's way to glory. After the suffering of his soul, the Lord Jesus Christ will be satisfied with what he sees. You've heard the saying, no cross, no crying. If it applied to Christ, then it also applies to his followers. It also applies to you and to me. And so we who profess to know Jesus Christ, we who profess to love him are called to deny self, as he did. We're called to take up the cross and endure suffering, perhaps, as he did. We are called to follow him as he followed the Father's will right up to the cross. And then we will experience the blessings that he knew. For if we suffer with Jesus Christ, we shall also reign with him. In this communion season, we have again been reminded of all that Christ accomplished for us through his life and death and resurrection. So what an immense privilege to know him as our Saviour. What an immense privilege that, by grace, we are recognising him as our Lord and our Master and our King. And as we leave this communion season, may we be resolved in our hearts to know him better. May we be resolved in our hearts to love him more. May we be resolved in our hearts to serve him more faithfully. And to achieve these goals, may we know much of the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts. And also, and also much of the grace of Christ to sustain us as we seek to live for him in coming days. Amen. Let's call upon God in prayer and stand as we pray. Our Father and our God, we, we do thank you for enabling us this evening to look uh, once again at the cross of Christ, central to our faith. And so we thank you that the cross was always part of your eternal purpose, that a plan was conceived in eternity, that the Son would come into the world, that he would take the place of the elect, that he would indeed suffer and die for them, and so he would bring many sons to glory. We thank you, Father, that the cross was God's efficacious plan, that it worked. And so the picture in heaven that John saw was of a great number that no man can number, from every nation, tribe, people, and language. We thank you that the cross is God's way to glory. Christ was glorified, 
as he was seated at your right hand in triumph. And we too will be glorified when our earthly race is run and we're welcomed into the Father's house. So our Father, help us to, to meditate on these things. Help us to recognize the immense privilege we enjoy of knowing him who is our prophet, priest, and king, of knowing him who is our saviour and our Lord and our Redeemer. And grant our Father that we might indeed be impelled to tell others of him, that they might know him too, and that they might be able to join with us in worship to glorify our saviour and our king. In his worthy name we pray. Amen.